For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, Lorraine Rivera reports on the Kino Border Initiative. Hear from Turner Classic Movies host Ben Mankiewicz, who's coming to the Fox Tucson Theater to present the 1959 Western Rio Bravo. I'll talk with Tucson author Lala Corriere about dramatizing the opioid epidemic in her new novel, Tracks. And film essayist Chris DeShiel remembers master filmmaker Nicholas Rogue. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Earlier this week, Lorraine Rivera, the host of Arizona 360 on PBS6, traveled to Nogales to report on the work of the Kino Border Initiative. They're a group that's aiding migrant families arriving at the border checkpoint amidst the Trump administration's rapidly changing immigrant policy. Thanks, Mark. So we've been to the Kino Border Initiative prior to this visit. What was different this time is that we saw more moms with children. In the past, we've seen men, recent deportees. In this case, what we were told is that families are primarily waiting in Mexico to be processed for asylum. So before they can even get into the United States, they have to wait in Mexico so that they're put into a system, a queue, before they meet with a customs officer who will process their claim. So they don't have a place to go. These shelters are feeding them, housing them, helping clothe them, care for them in the interim. In some cases, it can take two weeks, other cases up to a month. How do the people working at the border checkpoint feel about this process? Do they think that helping to screen the asylum seekers in Mexico is making the process run smoother? Customs and Border Protection, who I think is who you're referring to, they simply don't have the space to hold these families while they wait. They've stressed that it's not a resource issue because in the last few weeks, there have been 1,000 additional Customs Border Protection officers sent to the Arizona ports of entry alone. So they have the staff. It's just a matter of where do you hold men, women, and children who are waiting to be processed. In this case, Customs Border Protection is working closer with the Mexican government about supporting these families on the south side. So families come to the Mexican authorities and say, I'm here to request asylum. They take their name and information. The Mexican authorities essentially call Customs and say, we've got more families to be processed. So I understand that Kino Border Initiative has been uh, there at the border since about 2009 trying to help these families. What do they say has changed? They find that they are really serving in that advocacy role of helping educate and inform people about the process that they're about to experience. And here now is Joanna Williams, the Director of Education and Advocacy at the Kino Border Initiative. So they get almost no information when they, either from where they were, when they leave Guatemala or when they arrive to the border. Uh, so they've heard in, in Guatemala that there might be some opportunity for them to, to stay in the United States. When they get to the border and say, I'm afraid or I'm, or I'm seeking asylum, the Customs and Border Protection officer just says, well, wait, wait in this line uh, and doesn't orient them at all to the process. So that's where I think we come in uniquely. You've reported from the border often. What are some of the changes that you've seen that might be connected to the policy changes that are coming in from the Trump administration? I would say right now what you see that's different, especially at the Deconcini port of entry. So to be clear, Nogales, there are three ways to enter the United States. 
the Mariposa Port of Entries for commercial traffic, and then it goes to vehicles and some people. What you see there now, of course, is the concertina wiring, which has made uh, much of the headlines in recent weeks. But we also have Customs and Border Protection officers who are standing immediately south of the border, of course, still in the U.S. Uh, territory, but they actually have rifles and they're standing there as a presence because in the past few weeks, Customs has had family units requesting asylum who have tried to rush the ports of entry through vehicle lanes. So not standing in line, not requesting asylum, just trying to run or illegally enter through a vehicle lane instead. So they're there as a deterrent. Well, certainly many Americans over the Thanksgiving weekend were riveted with the television coverage showing the tear gas that was used at the Tijuana point of entry. Have you spoken with anyone about what occurred on the ground there? Sure. There's a reporter from the Arizona Republic who covers border and immigration issues, Rafael Carranza, and he's been there since Monday, which was after the tear gas event that many of us saw played out in the press. And what he says is there's a growing frustration that people are beginning to wonder how much longer will we be here. In Tijuana, there's more than 5,000 people waiting to be processed for asylum. In Arizona, for example, in San Luis, it's a little bit closer to Tijuana, of course. There are people there, though the numbers are unknown here. No galas, fewer. Same thing down as you get toward Douglas, the Agua Prieta area. The question now is, will these caravan groups start to splinter off into other areas of the border so their processing time will be less? And here's Rafael now talking about um, what he's been able to gather from the climate he's seen there. So I think as the desperation sets in here or they analyze what their options are, some of them might consider uh, moving to other other parts of the border, and certainly Arizona could be one of the uh, the areas that could be, you know, one of the primary targets. And I think that when I've spoken to some of the officials on the Mexican side, in uh, for example, Nogales, Sonora, that's one of the possibilities that they've been preparing for. They drafted this plan so that in case there is a large flow of migrants, um, you know, they have the shelter space available and they have a process um, to to get them queued up in line and you know settle in for for a few. Uh, days or weeks since, you know, they'll be waiting that much for uh, to talk to an asylum officer. So, Mark, what's important to note right now is there is some connection between the U.S. and Mexican authorities right now. I understand that there there's collaboration. Previously, when we've gone down to see asylum seekers, people were literally seated on the floor outside the ports of entry. That's not happening anymore. People are actually in rooms and in a building waiting for their, their turn um, so to speak, to see an asylum officer. The question now is, though, when will we start to see more people? The Mexican government is offering free trips home to people from Central America if they would like to return home. Not everyone is taking that offer, but how much longer can they really wait in Tijuana? Will they start to splinter off to areas like San Luis or Nogales or Agua Prieta, where they might have a better chance or a sooner chance, I should say, of requesting asylum? You can see the full report from Lorraine Rivera's recent border visit on the next Arizona 360 that airs this Friday at 8.30 p.m. and Sunday at 11 a.m. on PBS 6. The sun is sinking in the west The cattle go down to the stream The red wing settles in her nest It's time for a cowboy to dream Among the thousands of movies and TV shows that have been filmed at Old Tucson Studios, few have attained the acclaimed status of Rio Bravo, a 1959 Western, produced and directed by Howard Hawks, starring John Wayne, Dean Martin, Ricky Nelson, and Angie Dickinson. Tucson was recently chosen as the winner of Turner Classic Movies' Bring TCM to Your Hometown contest, and to celebrate Rio Bravo's 60th anniversary, the movie will be screened this Sunday 
at the Fox Tucson Theater with star Angie Dickinson in attendance. My guest, Ben Mankiewicz, has been hosting movies on the cable network TCM since 2003. He comes from a family that is literally Hollywood royalty, with his grandfather and uncles all making major contributions to film history, while his father and brother became journalists. Ben Mankiewicz can be seen as a blend of these two pursuits, as he's known for both progressive political commentary and being a devoted fan of movies. I ask if he thinks that his family's connection to the film business made him watch them differently when he was growing up. You know, it didn't, because I grew up in the D.C. wing of the family. My father was president of NPR from 77 to 82. Prior to that, he, he ran George McGovern's campaign for president in 1972. He was the political director with Gary Hart. They co-ran the campaign. And, uh, and then in uh, 1968, he was Bobby Kennedy's press secretary. And so I grew up in D.C. and keenly aware that there was a Hollywood wing of the family. I knew they were successful, and I knew people liked Citizen Kane. I cared about baseball and politics, you know, other than the things <laughs> that, that normal teenage boys care about. Yeah. And uh, first time I came to Los Angeles as an adult, I went to a party. I don't even remember. One of my cousins invited me to the party, but he has a different last name. And, and I got introduced to the host, and uh, I remember them sort of sticking their heels together and bowing and saying Hollywood royalty, you know, and I was like, I don't know, 21 or 20 or however old I was. And I just remember, I literally thought there must be someone behind me like, Oh, (laughs) you know, Davy Spielberg must be coming in now or something. So it took a little bit. So I I don't think it affected in any way, even though the citizen Kane Oscar was in our home, it was not something that we, uh, that we uh, uh, treated with a great deal of, of reverence or even discussion. Do you have any recollection of how you may have first seen Rio Bravo? Did it make an impression on you as a filmgoer? When I saw it at TCM, I saw it in the political context that it is often discussed as the sort of response film to Fred Zinnemann's High Noon, the Gary Cooper picture, and which is such a great Western and has a great hook, the clock, you know, it's essentially running. The movie takes place over 90 minutes. And so I was sort of led to believe that this is Howard Hawks' response, and there's significant scholarship on this. I don't doubt that it's true, because Hawks didn't like Cooper's sheriff, Will Kane, going around begging for help. But every time I see Real Bravo, I have to remind myself that it's some sort of conservative response to the perceived liberal nature of High Noon, because I, I really have to make myself see it. I just see it as a cool version of High Noon with a different kind of sheriff. In, in John Wayne. And, there, you know, if you love classic movies and, and you enjoy a really well-made Western, then you love both these movies. Angie Dickinson will be there in, in Tucson uh, when we do this event. Every time I, I have a discussion with her about Rio Bravo, I ask her about the sort of the political nature and Hawks and Wayne standing up for what they feel. Insufficiently weak nature of, of Will Kane and High Noon and this you know, in a movie, the Carl Foreman picture, High Noon, that would be an allegory for the blacklist. And Angie says, yeah, no clue. <laughs> and Angie's <laughs> a big Hollywood liberal, proud Hollywood liberal. She was like, yeah, no no idea that was going on. Tell our audience something about her portrayal in the film. First of all, you got to love the name of her character, right? Feathers, yes. <laughs> there aren't too many uh, leading female roles named Feathers in motion picture history. No, but if they were going to have one, they got the right actress to play it. Angie, you know, she was a victim, like Robert Redford, so beautiful that there's sort of just a presumption that, you know, she got by on her looks. She definitely has charisma. 
Um, but she's a really fine actress, and, and every movie that she's in, uh, I say it every time uh, we run one of her movies, no matter how small the part, it gets better because she's in it. It's just, you know, she took it seriously. She was, uh, and, uh, and I always, everybody who thinks that just somebody got this role just because they're beautiful, uh, I just think she adds so much to it. There aren't many actresses who can tangle on screen effectively with uh, John Wayne in their own way. I think in Rio Bravo, she certainly does. What I had to go through, put on these tights, ask a lot of questions, start to walk out, I thought you were never going to say it. Say what? That you loved me. I said I'd arrest you. It means the same thing. You know that. You just won't say it. Oh, we're different. I'll have to get used to you. Me, I just talk all the time. You most certainly do. Dean Martin may be famous now for other reasons than the Western portrayals that he did, but uh, how would you say his dramatic acting comes across in Rio Bravo? I think really well. You know, there's that famous line, I almost don't believe it because it's too good a story. You know, I'm dubious of all these great backstage stories now because they're just too perfect. But, you know, so Hawks insists on Martin and, you know, and they have to delay shooting because Martin is performing somewhere else. I can't quite remember. I think he was performing. And so they hold and and Jack Warner doesn't really want to cast him. And then all of a sudden he gets, uh, they agrees because Hawks insisted and, and then Hawks, excuse me, uh, Warner's looking at the dailies, and he's like, look, man, you made this big fuss about Dean Martin. When's he get here? Like, when am I going to see a little Dean Martin? And, and Warner was looking at Dean Martin, right? But he so underplayed that sort of stylish persona that Warner was afraid of. Uh, Hawks told him, hey, man, I don't want you looking like Dean Martin. You're a bum. You know, you're, you're a drunk um, you know, you're loyal, you're a good guy, but, you know, you should look that part. And, and, and Martin completely embraced that and delivered a really good performance. And again, I don't think it's something that should necessarily be a surprise. I mean, I'm not trying to take anything away from Jerry Lewis, but I think being the straight man is harder. Uh, and I think that Martin and Lewis, those movies work because of Martin's willingness and, and, and uncanny ability to play the straight man, to play believably irritated as often as he did. I wonder in your tenure as host of TCM movies, what kind of observation you've made about the TCM audience? And do you think that classic Hollywood films are appealing to people across all generations? Well, I certainly think they're appealing to people across all generations. It's just a matter of getting them exposed to it and sort of getting past the idea that you guys have to deal with, I don't listen to that, so or I don't know, it's a black and white movie, nothing interesting yet. So once you get past that, once you expose these movies to people, the interesting thing is no one would ever say that about J.D. Salinger or Ernest Hemingway, right? Ugh, another old book, right? <laughs> so for some reason, though, this idea that we should dismiss old movies, uh, you know, perseveres. You know, I don't have the research in front of me, but our research shows a staggeringly high percentage of people under 50 watch the channel. I have a theory that I cannot back up with an ounce of data, but that as the world of filmmaking has changed in the last 10 years and digital filmmaking has made this art form available at an earlier age to so many young filmmakers, that there's very little for them to learn from James Cameron, who's a wonderful director. I'm not knocking him, but uh, you know, so maybe I'll use Michael Bay, you know, so they can watch a Michael Bay film, but that's not going to help them in the $50,000 they have to make their movie. But they can learn something from Alan Hawk, and they can learn something from John Ford about how to frame a shot. They can't blow anything up. 
right? But they can learn from Fred Zinnemann, and they can learn from Joe Mankiewicz. So I think that uh, the, there are a lot of young filmmakers who are learning effective storytelling on screen. Whippoorwill in the willow sings a sweet melody. Ben Mankiewicz of Turner Classic Movies will present Rio Bravo in Technicolor this Sunday, December 2nd at 2 p.m. at the Fox Tucson Theater. He'll also host a conversation with special guest Angie Dickinson. Tickets are free, but seating is limited. You can find a link for information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The novel Tracks is the latest work from Tucson author Lala Corriere. She uses the ongoing national epidemic of opioid addiction as a backdrop for a thriller focusing on the lives that are destroyed by addiction to prescription drugs. Corriere followed her dream of becoming a writer after careers in real estate and interior design. On her website, she describes herself as the mistress to suspense, something I felt I had to ask her about. Sidney Sheldon mentored me, and he was the master of suspense. And then we have Mary Higgins Clark, who's the queen of suspense. So I guess I just put my twist on it. With my books, generally I throw in some pretty big twists, but the hints have been there all along. It's the kind of thing people will go back and reread to see, that because I love that part of it, tying up all the little loose ends. What would you say was your primary goal in writing tracks? Well, this is a second in my first series with my Tucson private detective, Cassidy Clark. What I explore in tracks are, first of all, the mafia that is in our backyard right here in Tucson. And I wanted to explore what is a true crisis in our country. And it's it's in the news every day. It's the use of overuse of uh, prescribed painkillers leading toward heroin abuse. It was one of the scariest things I researched because we're talking about your neighbor next door that's in big trouble. Well, tell me a little more about what form your research into the opioid epidemic took in order to inform the book tracks. I would not use names, but I interviewed several doctors, and one of them basically has lost his license. I don't remember the cost of his office visits, but it was cash up front, and the FBI came in and seized everything from him. Hmm. I met with him after the fact. He proclaims that he was doing a good service for people, but in fact, we know the reality is he was pocketing a lot of money, and it's uh, devastating. What about victims of addiction? Um, In what form did your preparation for the book take in understanding what people who become addicted to opioids go through? Well, my research involved definitely talking to methadone clinics. They try and help these people. Almost any of us can get a prescription for opioids, and uh, we might get it refilled maybe more than once, maybe twice. But the government is cracking down on these doctors that are overprescribing these bad drugs. And what's happening is that People are learning that, you know, the doctors aren't giving them these drugs anymore. They're addicted, so they turn to the streets. And they don't know really what's out there in the streets. What they do know is that heroin is a viable option. Gives you twice the high at half the price. 
that's what's happening. How many novels have you written before tracks? Five. This is my sixth one. Tell me a little bit about how you go about creating characters. And if you'd like to use Cassidy Clark as an example, go right ahead. Well, Cassidy Clark happens to be a feisty redhead. Where did you get an idea for that, Lala? <laughs> that lives in Tucson. Okay. And um, she's just a strong person. I'm a very strong person, but I'd be scared to pieces doing some of the things that she does. So she's kind of my alter ego, I suppose you could say. I love character development because I like the multidimensional because we all are. Before I begin a new novel, I probably have an idea of the plot. But then very much next to that is creating the characters. I need to know them intimately. I need to know if they like pizza. I need to know if they are educated. I need to know uh, if they have family and, and do they like dogs? Do they prefer goldfish? I just want to know every little detail I can. And it's really hard because when you're writing a novel, let's just say you're up to about 85,000 words. You have to remember fiction writers are liars. So we have to remember all of those lies. Mm -hmm. How is it that Cassidy Clark came into doing private investigation? Did she have a background in law enforcement? She did have a background in law enforcement. Really, she was just a street cop. Cassidy has a uh, college buddy that went to law school, became a lawyer, There's maintained good friends. And in the book tracks, Brisey LeMay, the attorney, comes down to Tucson and they form a practice together. They share cases, you know, as they intertwine quite often where they need to do stakeouts, research, that kind of thing. Lala Courier's Cassidy Clark mystery novel is called Tracks, available from Bridge Publishing. Last Saturday, I was among millions of film lovers around the world who were saddened to learn of the death of Nicholas Rogue considered by many to be one of the greatest directors of all time. Rogue often manipulated his audience's concepts of space and time, creating stories that each have their own individual flow and distinct visual identity. Some of his movies rank highly among the best that I've ever seen, so I asked film essayist Chris DeShiel to share some thoughts. Nicholas Rogue died on November 23rd at the age of 90. His passing is especially poignant because, for me, he represents a rarity, someone who used his success not to make lots of money, but to advance the art of cinema. He started as a cinematographer, well-regarded in the industry for mentoring other cinematographers. But he will always be best remembered for his innovative work as a director. He directed a total of 14 features. They're all daring in one way or another. He wasn't just a journeyman, he had a vision and it's a commitment to his vision that comes across most strongly in his work. Today I'm going to talk about four of his films. In 1968, his friend Donald Camel approached him with a screenplay, and together they directed Performance. James Fox plays a brutal gangster who hides out from the law at the home of a singer played by Mick Jagger. A series of strange events leads up to a kind of merging of the two identities, criminal and rock star. Right off the bat in this film, Rogue revealed an adventurous, experimental style with lots of cross-cutting and disjunctive visual and sound editing. The combined themes of gangsters, sex, and rock and roll had a subversive impact. 
The studio wouldn't even release it until two years later from fear of controversy, and a lot of critics slammed it when it finally did come out. Yet over the years, it has become very influential. Performance is a fascinating work that prefigures a lot of the stylistic advances in 1970s film. Next, in 1971, came Walkabout, Rogue's first fully realized work, a story of a teenage girl and her little brother abandoned in the middle of the Australian outback who only survived through the help of a young indigenous Australian. The white children and the native boy can't understand each other's language, and thus the film becomes a largely nonverbal drama. Rogue's style is in sync with the awesome and forbidding landscape. He mostly refrains from his usual fast-cutting techniques, relying instead on intense concentration and stillness. Walkabout projects a spooky majesty. It's a beautiful and deeply sad masterpiece, one of the essential modern films. In 1973, Rogue directed Don't Look Now, one of the great ghost story films. Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie are the grieving parents of a little girl that drowned. They go to Venice in the winter when the husband gets a commission to help restore a church. There they meet a woman who claims to be clairvoyant and says that their daughter has contacted her and is trying to warn them of danger. The editing style Rogue used in performance is here honed to a fine edge, accentuating the couple's grief, emotional denial, and desperate need to believe what the psychic is telling them. Don't Look Now achieves a stunning sense of emotional devastation, with a finale that is one of the most shocking I've ever seen. There's one more film I need to mention that has been, I think, underrated. Bad Timing, released in 1980. It's the story of an American psychiatrist living in Vienna, played by Art Garfunkel, who is obsessed with a beautiful and disturbed woman with a mysterious past, played by Teresa Russell. The film's graphic sexuality earned it an X rating in America, which meant that it wasn't given wide distribution. It was also savaged by critics. It seems to me that Rogue pushed his style to the limit here. It starts with a young woman in the emergency room after a suicide attempt and then flashes back and forth in time with a relentless rhythm. The cross-cutting is purposeful and it has a visceral effect on the viewer. The film is also a puzzle that the audience is challenged to put together. The mood is increasingly despairing and it culminates in a surprising and rather horrifying indictment of the cruelty and callousness of romantic obsession. When you watch it, you'll understand why bad timing was controversial, but in my opinion, it's a very brave film. Rogue had the courage to shatter myths about love, myths that remain dominant in the movies and in our culture. In this, he was once again a visionary. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Shield. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.